Welcome to the My Psychology Podcast. Thanks for joining us. My name is Andy Pomerantz, and I'm a psychology professor at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. I also happen to be the author of the My Psychology textbook from Macmillan Learning. In each episode of this podcast, instructors from various colleges and universities join me to talk about the most important and most interesting parts of the chapter to help you understand and appreciate them. As we do, we will share some stories about our own experiences with concepts from the chapter from inside or outside of the classroom. Okay, in this episode, we'll be focusing on chapter nine, which is the chapter on development across the lifespan. And today I'm happy to be joined by two other instructors who also teach the introductory psychology class using this textbook, the My Psychology textbook. First, we have Dr. Jessamy Comer. She is a lecturer in the Department of Psychology at the Rochester Institute of Technology in Rochester, New York. Hi, Jessamy. Hello. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely. And we also have Dr. Deborah Roberts. She is a professor and chair of the Department of Psychology at Howard University in Washington, D.C. Hi, Deborah. Hey, thanks for having me again. Looking forward to it. Yeah, thanks for being with us. So here's a quick summary of Chapter 9, Development Across the Lifespan. The chapter starts by pointing out some of the big overarching issues in development, like stability versus change over time, stage development versus continuous development, and nature versus nurture. It then covers development before birth, including the problems that teratogens can cause, and moves into development in infancy and childhood. That's where we see the work of Jean Piaget, the research he conducted, the cognitive stages he proposed, and the research that more contemporary psychologists have done to re-examine some of his conclusions. The next section is on adolescent development, and it includes Kohlberg's stages of moral development and Eric Erickson's eight-stage theory of development, which includes the adolescent stage of identity versus role confusion. The chapter ends with a section on adult development, which includes the normal changes and declines that take place during these years of life, along with landmarks like forming couples, becoming parents, working, caring for older relatives, grandparenting, retiring, and facing death. So as we're, as we're starting to talk about Piaget here, Jessamy, can you give us just a quick, a quick review, just to remind students of what, they've, what they're reading in the chapter about who Piaget is and some of the highlights of his theories, his stages? Uh, so Piaget was a really a transformative figure of the developmental psychology movement. Uh, his first stage is sensory motor. And in sensory motor stage, really they're, they're just basically taking in sensations from the environment and learning through their sensations. Um, the second stage uh, is his uh, pre-operational stage. Uh, at this point, they're starting to learn language. Uh, so they're starting to use language as symbols. So now words can stand for objects in their environment. They uh, still can't think of a very very com complex ways. So for example, they struggle with what we call theory of mind, which is ability to take on the mind states of people who are not themselves. So they don't understand how other people think very well. One area that they struggle is with conservation, uh, which is basically an understanding that the, the physical properties of an object don't change even if you change the superficial appearance of them. So his classic conservation task is the water glass task, where he'll take two exact same glasses of, of water, they're filled exact same amount, and while the child is watching, he will take one of them and pour it into a taller, thinner glass. Um, so now when you look at 
at it, the taller, thinner glass has a higher water line than the original shorter glass. And he'll ask the child, which glass has more water? And pre-operation children consistently will tell you the taller, thinner glass has more water. Even though they saw him pour it into the the taller, thinner glass. Uh, So then they move into the concrete operations stage. And in here, they start, at this point, they now can pass the conservation test and kind of move forward in that way. Um, They can start to think a little bit more in terms of uh, uh, logic, but really mostly on tangible objects. Deborah, any thoughts about the... The, the Piaget section of the chapter? Yeah, yeah. I actually had identified schemes as something that I really emphasize. And I agree with you that focusing on Piaget and helping students understand that children are not just many adults, there's a whole cognitive shift that occurs throughout the lifespan, at least up until adolescence, according to Piaget. But focusing specifically on schemas, I think, is really interesting because I always do some little exercise to get the students to understand that we really are very biased in our schemas and this whole thing about assimilation accommodation. They really get confused. Um, So I introduce schemas first as a fun way to show that what we do, that, you know, a lot, large part of Piaget's theory was about how we go through life, assimilating and accommodating, assimilating and accommodating. And so schemas, which of course are the mental representations that guide how we make sense of our world, I think are really important for them to have as a foundation. And sometimes I give an example of how I went back to (laughs) my elementary school, and I think we all have this experience. And even though I'm a developmental psychologist, and you know, I was at the time, and I I just was blown away by how small the toilet stalls were. And the, and I was like, D- who, who like, can use this? So, you know, even those of us who understand intellectually the whole thing about assimilation accommodation and that we have these schemas, when we go back to a schema that we had when we were young, it's like, wow, this was my world. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so uh, Deborah, what's another topic from Chapter 9 that you think is especially uh, important for students to know? You know, as a developmentalist, of course, there's so many. So, But I love the word teratogens, and I always introduce it sort of as a fun concept. I mean, of course, it has dire consequences, but just as a way of introducing prenatal development, because I think when we talk about development, sometimes we forget that it actually happens prior to the baby being in the physical world. So there is a lot that can happen during the the stages, embryonic, fetal, and of course, the, the when the zygote is formed. And so I use teratogens as a way of helping students understand some of the implications of teratogens, which of course are toxic substances or toxic environments. So teratogen, of course, is any substance that harms the embryo or fetus. And we use an example of something as common as alcohol. And students are like, oh my gosh. Yeah, definitely. It's so important. I like how the discussion of teratogens can can remind students just how much power the um, the woman has to, you know, hopefully have a positive impact on the on the sort of prenatal environment of the of the child. That it's not just a matter of chance. That there are things that the that the woman can do to to make things better or, or to to eliminate or minimize a lot of those teratogens. Okay, let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll talk more about uh, the highlights of chapter nine, development across the lifespan. 
The My Psychology Podcast is brought to you by Launchpad from Macmillan Learning. When I wrote My Psychology, I wanted students to maximize their connection to the science of psychology, and Launchpad does just that. It's the one place where you can find the full ebook of My Psychology, features like My Take videos, chapter apps, and show me more links, and Macmillan's full library of resources, including videos, flashcards, concept practice activities, and more. Best of all, Launchpad includes the Learning Curve Adaptive Quizzing System, designed based on cognitive research to improve your learning and help you retain information over time. In addition, the Learning Curve algorithm chooses questions based on your performance, delivering a quiz that is unique to you. If you aren't using Launchpad already, you can sign up for a free trial right now. That's right, you can get 21 days of free access right now by visiting launchpadworks.com and searching for my psychology that's launchpadworks.com sign up now for your 21 days of free access and start studying with the learning curve adaptive quizzing system Welcome back. We are here discussing chapter 9, development across the lifespan from the My Psychology textbook. I'm Andy Pomerantz from Southern Illinois University Edwardsville and I am the author of the textbook and I am joined today by two other instructors who teach this the same course and use the same textbook. They are Dr. Jessamy Comer, a lecturer in the Department of Psychology at Rochester Institute of Technology in Rochester, New York, and Dr. Deborah Roberts, a professor and chair of the Department of Psychology at Howard University in Washington, DC. So there was one other topic that I wanted to bring up from the development chapter and uh, a topic that I think is, is particularly important and one I think that resonates for students pretty strongly, and that is parenting styles. Whenever this topic comes up in my class, students kind of perk up a little bit, and, and a lot of them, even the ones who haven't participated very much, seem willing or even eager to participate and tell sort of the stories of their own childhoods and the, and the parenting styles they, they experience with their own parent or parents. And of course, again, just to remind students, we're talking about the, the three different parenting styles that, that psychologists have identified here. Um, authoritarian parenting style, which is which is a kind of a uh, because I said so kind of attitude of, of parents who who set up some pretty strict rules and, and insist that their kids obey those rules in an unquestionable, uh, unquestioning kind of way. Authoritative parenting style. Um, in which parents do set rules, but they also explain those rules and they're willing to negotiate those rules and kind of um, reconsider those rules with their kids. And then the, the permissive parenting style in which the parents really don't have many rules or many demands at all. So there are a few interesting things about these parenting styles that, that come up in my class. One, one is that some students have a, have a difficult time placing their parent in squarely into one of those three categories. And I think that's very understandable. And it, it leads to a nice discussion sometimes about how psychologists, psych, psychological researchers often have to come up with, I don't know, categories or labels for things that are, that can be somewhat arbitrary. In other words, these are the three categories that we have sort of settled on as, as a field, as, as, psychologists or developmental psychologists, we've sort of said these are the three categories of, of parenting styles, but everybody knows that there are a million different kinds of parenting styles. And, and then there's also there are also some interesting um, conversations about which parenting styles are the most beneficial or the most ideal. And psychological researchers, uh, developmental researchers have, have usually landed on the authoritative parenting style as the one that's most beneficial. And a lot of students agree with that. But sometimes I get students who, who point out the benefits of some of the other styles uh, of parenting. So any thoughts from either of you about the, about the whole parenting styles uh, topic? 
one of the questions I like to ask is about parenting styles. And I really enjoy reading the responses because you get a lot of insight into the students because they often categorize their mother or dad differently. So it shows that you can be in the same household and experience different parenting styles. Like you said, Andy, it, you know, it's not as clear cut as we want to make it in terms of putting people into these three parenting styles. There, there are so many and it changes by individual. It changes from one person to another. It changes depending on the cultural background. The other thing that comes into play, and sometimes I like to ask this question or talk about this topic in conjunction with parenting styles is temperament. Because similar to culture having an impact on parenting style, the child's temperament, I think, very often has an impact in which parenting style may be most effective. And temperament is uh, basically the emotional responsiveness that characterizes a person throughout their lifespan. Yeah, it's a two-way street. The, 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 kids, the mm-hmm. kids' temperament can definitely influence the, the type of parenting style that the parents use. In fact, as you were talking, I was thinking about the, the students of mine who are parents, who were talking about these parenting style issues, not from the perspective of a kid, or not just from the perspective of a kid, but from the perspective of a parent. And sometimes if they have more than one kid, they will talk about how they're different with, with each kid, based largely, I'm sure, on the kid's temperament. Like, my older kid needs this, but my younger kid needs that kind of a strategy for parenting. And that can definitely justify different parenting styles for different kids from the same parent. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I think uh, you mentioned the big three at the very beginning of the podcast, Andy, and nature versus nurture was among them. And I hate to leave a discussion without even giving a little sort of insight into what that is uh, to simplify it. You know, a long time ago, it was psychologists and philosophers and educators would talk about the nature-nurture debate, whether development occurs predominantly as a result of what we bring to the table or as a result of the social, physical, et cetera, environment that we are reared in. And so over the decades, I think many of us or most psychologists come to make peace with the fact that it's a little bit of both. But one of the reasons I think it's really important is that when we talk about nature, sometimes students get a little confused. And I have to always say that nature is not about the grass and the trees and the environment, because it's it's almost counterintuitive if you just bring up nature versus nature. So I really want to emphasize that you students pay attention to the difference between nature, which is your natural state, what you bring to the table, not nature as we know it in the environment. Environment and nurture is where you get envi- the impact of environmental factors, whether it's physical, whether it's your physical environment, whether it's your social environment. And then there's a lot of talk about culture. And so I think it's really important to understand how these different environments can impact development uh, throughout the course of the lifespan. I agree. Thanks for, thanks for bringing that up. Nature and nurture is such a huge issue throughout all of psychology, and I'm glad we were, we were able to highlight it here in, in Chapter 9. Jessamy, any last, any last quick thoughts about Chapter 9? Um, I think one thing I would want to highlight is that development happens across the lifespan. Um, you know, as you probably noticed, a lot of the chapter focuses on infancy, childhood, and adolescence, a little bit less so on adulthood. Uh, but uh, 
It's really important to recognize that we are always changing and developing, even into adulthood. Uh, some of our early theories in development thought that development was pretty much done by oh, 12 or 13. So you look at Freud's psychosexual theory, Piaget's theory, and they, they all thought, ah, once you hit about puberty, you're done. But, you know, think about your 12-year-old self versus yourself now. You I probably have changed a bit since then. Uh, and of course you have. And developmentalists recognize that now. So there's been a bigger push in the field to look beyond infancy, childhood, and adolescence and into what happens as you get older. Um, so what happens in midlife and towards the end of your life. And so I just want to highlight the importance of a lifespan approach to development and understanding that you're always changing, you're always developing. So, you know, don't feel stuck that, oh, well, I guess, you know, I turned 18, I'm legally an adult, I guess that's it for me. Of course not. You're, you're still going to be seeing some changes across your lifespan. And we're spending more time now researching these things and trying to understand what does change and how even into old age. Yeah, that's a great point. And that there, there's a reason why lifespan is in the title of the chapter. <laughs> Uh, to, to emphasize that it does include all of adulthood as well as as well as childhood and prenatal development too. So big thanks to both Dr. Jessamy Comer and Dr. Deborah Roberts for joining us today. Again, Dr. Jessamy Comer is a lecturer in the Department of Psychology at, at the Rochester Institute of Technology up in Rochester, New York. And Dr. Deborah Roberts, who's a professor and the chair of the Department of Psychology at Howard University in Washington, D.C., and thanks to all of you for listening. We hope this podcast helps you learn and appreciate the material in this chapter. Of course, you should check with your own instructor to see what's most important in your own class. And for more resources for studying this chapter, check out Launchpad at launchpadworks.com. Talk to you again soon.